I'm sure most of us um, have, if not read, at least know or have heard of the story of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. And there's the story of this man who uses this potion to transform into another person, and then he uses another potion to transform back into his original, to go from Dr. Jekyll to Mr. Hyde and from Mr. Hyde to Dr. Jekyll. And what's often misunderstood about that story um, is that it's not actually two different people. It's not actually like um, there's kind of this monster that takes over Dr. Jekyll and turns him into Mr. Hyde. It's actually just one person, and Dr. Jekyll is this um, upstanding, respectable man that people um, would look at and be like, oh, that's a good person. And on the outside, that's what he looks like, respectable, um, trustworthy, somebody that you could look to. He's a doctor. Uh, but then on the inside, he feels these desires and these impulses to do evil and selfish things. And so he's like, I can't just do those things because I'm a respectable man. And so he creates kind of this, not alter ego, but he uses this person called Mr. Hyde. He turns into Mr. Hyde through this po- potion. He doesn't actually turn into this big monster. He kind of is a younger, kind of smaller, more handsome, but also more like evil looking version of himself that is this expression of the evil and the selfishness inside of him. And so he wants to hide these evil impulses, hide these sins that he wants to commit. Um, he doesn't want to commit them as Dr. Jekyll. And so he takes this potion and to be able to do it as Mr. Hyde. So he can hide Mr. Hyde, hide those things in that person rather than doing it as Dr. Jekyll himself. And sometimes in the Christian life, we can feel a little bit like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. We can feel like there's this one part of us that wants to do good, that wants to be respectable and trustworthy and and loving and patient and kind. We want to uh, do good things. And there's another part of us that feels like wants to do bad all the time. We want to be loving and kind and patient and stop doing the hurtful thing and stop that destructive habit. And we want to be better people. We truly want those things, but there seems to be something else inside of us um, that draws us towards the opposite thing, pulling us away from doing all those good things. We keep doing the hurtful thing. We keep getting annoyed. We keep speaking harshly with others. We keep doing the bad that we want to not do and not the good that we say we want to do. And for me, in that struggle, it can become this sort of downward spiral. I want to live for God. I want to love others. Um, That's the thing that I'm wanting to do, but I keep doing the opposite. I keep thinking of myself first rather than thinking of others. I keep loving doing the things that I find important rather than doing what other people are saying is important. And when I do that, I feel, man, I'm far from God. He's mad at me, and I feel guilty and ashamed. And so then, okay i got to get out of this place where I feel far from God, where I feel guilty and ashamed. I need to do better. I need to stop doing that impatient thing. I need to stop doing that unloving thing. I need to start doing all the good things that um, I need to do to not feel this guilt and feel far from God. And so I try to overcome the impulse, but then I end up doing it again, and I feel even further from God, feel more guilt, feel more shame, feel more um, fear. And so then I've dug this hole for myself, and I need to keep working harder to get myself out. And it's the guilt and shame and the farness from God actually become these weights that um, push me down further, and the distance make it even harder to um, do the good. And so eventually I just feel tired and defeated and, and stuck, like there's no end in sight. And I'm sure you can relate to wanting to change, wanting to be a better person, wanting to grow, wanting to do what the Bible says, wanting to be loving and kind and obey God, and, um, but then also feeling like you just keep failing. And the more you fail, the more far you feel from God, and the more far you feel from God, the harder you find it to change. We've been in this series on the Holy Spirit, um, and we've been focusing on his role and his work 
in our lives, and we've said that his desire is to make us, and we have on this sign, to make us God's sons and daughters inside and out. That it's not just this behavior modification, uh, but God, the Spirit, comes is given to us to make us God's sons and daughters inside and out. And this first part of our series, um, this is the seventh week, uh, has been largely focused on growing our, our awareness of what is the Spirit's work in our lives. And the goal of that is so we can enjoy Him. We've been learning the truth about this is what the Spirit is given to us to do, um, and this is how we can start being thankful for Him and aware of Him, and this is what He's about. Um, after today, um, the rest of the series is more a bit about, like, that's who... Um, what the Spirit is about, and now, okay, here's what we can do to rely on Him. That's what the rest of this series um, is going to be about. Um, and so Romans chapter 8 that we're covering today is this gigantic passage on the Holy Spirit. We read 30 verses. There's eight more we could read. There's 38 or 39 in total. Um, so we could, it's just gigantic, and it has really good news for us in our fight against sin. It's, and it's this, through Jesus, our sin doesn't separate us from God anymore. We can be free of its control of our lives, and there's no, and there's an end to it. There's an end to this thing called sin. Through Jesus, our sin doesn't separate us from God anymore. We can be free of it, and there's an end to it. And if you are waiting for me to state the big idea, that's not it. But you can write that down if you'd like. Our sin doesn't separate us from God. We can be free of it, and there's an end to it. And if we were to back up and read Romans chapter 7, um, you would perhaps be asking yourself after reading that chapter, is this chapter talking about someone who is a Christian or someone who isn't a Christian? Is Paul describing somebody, the Apostle Paul wrote this letter, is he describing somebody who does believe in Jesus or someone who doesn't believe in Jesus? And there's been debate um, down through the centuries of like, is this talking about a believer or someone who isn't a believer? Um, in, in it, the Apostle Paul describes someone who is struggling to be free of sin in their life. He describes someone who thinks God's law, God's commandments, God's instructions sound good and they want to do them, but then they find themselves unable to because of this other thing that he calls the flesh, this inclination away from God to do bad. They, they want to do God's law, want to obey God, but then they find this other thing pulling against them, this other power at work, and they have this sinful nature that pulls them towards doing the opposite of what God commands. And one famous preacher, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, said that asking whether this describes a believer or an unbeliever misses the point. If that's the question you're asking, he says that's going to miss the point of the passage. He's, the point, he says, is that it describes someone who's trying to grow by focusing on keeping God's commands in their own power. It's that there's this set of commands, this set of laws, a set of instructions, and the person is trying to say, like, okay, I need to keep these. I need to obey those. And they're trying to muster up this power from within themselves, this strength from within, within themselves to, to keep it. And Romans 7 describes a person who hears God's commands and tries to keep them through their own effort. What they experience is a desire to obey, but not the ability to actually do it. They keep doing the opposite. They feel defeated. They feel stuck. They can't grow. They feel like a dirty wretch before God. This is what Paul says. He's like, you know, wretch of a man I am. You know, he's not necessarily speaking, I mean, he's speaking from his own experience as someone who was trying to do this, but saying if a person was trying to do this, they would just be like, I'm just a wretch. I can never do what God asked me to do. I just keep doing the opposite. I keep doing the bad thing. You feel stuck. So can any of you relate to that experience of like, here's God's commands. 
and I want to do it, and you just feel defeated, you feel stuck, you feel like, man, I'm just a wretched, dirty sinner. Why can I not just do this good, loving thing that God tells me to do? And this is the backdrop of the glorious good news of Romans chapter 8, which is like Kim and I have been painting our, a bedroom in our house. And in Romans, it's not like Paul just kind of does this A, B, C, D progression of thought. It's more like as we're painting our walls, it's like look, we have one layer, we go over it. But you can't just hit it once with the roller. You have to hit another layer again. And it's like Paul, I mean, we're going with the same paint. You know, We're not doing a different kind of paint. And Paul just keeps, he rolls once and he kind of overlaps and then he rolls again. And he's just rolling and it's getting thicker and thicker. And Romans 8 is where he hits a really thick point And what he's saying. Like this is what the gospel is. And our big idea for today, today is this. The spirit, uh-oh, my clip needs to be adjusted so you can actually see it. The Spirit makes us like Jesus by freeing us from sin. The Spirit makes us like Jesus by freeing us from sin. The Spirit makes us like Jesus by freeing us from sin. And there are three aspects to this freedom, if you want to write those down. The Spirit makes us like Jesus by freeing us from sin's penalty, from sin's power, from sin's presence. The Spirit makes us like Jesus by freeing us from sin's penalty, sin's power, and sin's presence. I didn't make those up. I'm not that clever. They've been used for a long time in in the church. But the Spirit makes us like Jesus by freeing us from sin's penalty, sin's power, sin's presence. And that's how we're going to take this passage. It's just like the whole entire array of what you could say about this is the good news of what God does for us through Jesus um, by the Spirit is past, present, future, doesn't matter. Sin no longer defines our lives. And so let's start with we're set free from the penalty of sin. The Spirit makes us like Jesus by freeing us from sin. And he starts in verses 1 and 2 is where he says this. So remember he has just been describing somebody who's trying to obey the law, God's commands, and their own power, and they feel like, I am a dirty wretch of a sinner. I can never do this. And he says, who's going to set us free from this body of death? And he says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. And, now, and then comes Romans 8. Romans 8, 1 and 2, he says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. And so here we hear, the Spirit makes us like Jesus by freeing us from sin's penalty. And we'll come back even more to that later on, uh, what the flip side of no condemnation um, is not just like, cool, you have no condemnation, you know, just kind of do your thing now. The flip side of that, the positive side, is now we are God's sons and daughters. Now there's nothing that separates us from God. There's no condemnation, and we're brought into God's family, and now... When God looks at you, he, it, he sees a person who does, he does not condemn as a judge, but that he loves as a father. And that's, so that's the flip side of no condemnation. Um, but freeing us from the penalty of sin, and, and so the Spirit making us like Jesus, like Jesus means God is now for us and not against us. That's what he'll say later in Romans 8, that God is now for us and not against us. He's no longer against us as a judge. God doesn't look at us and see here's all this sin I need to condemn this person for. Once you trust in Jesus, there is no condemnation for your sin. There's nothing, your sin does not separate you from God. He doesn't say, well, you know, you better get your act together or else there's going to be condemnation. No, there's no condemnation ever for someone 
who is in Christ Jesus. But it doesn't, doesn't stop at no condemnation. It doesn't stop at forgiveness. There's more. Our relationship with God um, is better and deeper um, than simply we go to him to get forgiveness when we mess up. Um, there's also this transformation from the inside out that it's not just like, ooh, I mean, Paul addresses that in, in Romans, that, ooh, yay, so there's no condemnation, so I can do whatever I want. No, there's this transformation. You're, whole, you're no longer defined by sin. You aren't defined by its penalty, and you're not defined by its power in your life. And so, <clears throat> verses 3 through 17 outline how the Spirit makes us like Jesus by freeing us from sin's power. So let's start. We'll take verses 3 through 8 at the start, or to start off with, and we'll reread those. So verses 3 through 8. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. Those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. There's a lot said here. And Romans chapter 8, I mean, is just so packed. It's like all these little streams coming together into this big, huge pond, and we just cannot cover every single thing that um, you might have a question about in these verses. But the, ver- the key is in verses 7 through 8 of what is being said here. Um, so Paul says in uh, verse 4, the righteous requirement of the law is fulfilled in us. And if you think about what's the righteous requirement of the law, the Old Testament, what was the whole thing that... God was driving for. Somebody asked Jesus this exact question. Hey, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus said, well, love the Lord your God with everything you are and everything you have. And then there's a second that's like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. So the righteous requirement, what the law, what God's whole command, I mean, basically it's like, hey, I just want you to do two things. Just love me, love other people. And we can't do that. We fail at it. Um, and even if we want to do it, um, what Paul says, <clears throat> verse 7 he says that our the the um, set the mind in the flesh is or sorry verse seven the mind that is set in the flesh is hostile to God does not submit to God's law indeed it cannot and the flesh doesn't mean like oh you know like our body's just bad like body's bad spirit's good that's not ever um, how the Bible looks at um, us as people it doesn't divide us up like that. Um, there is a time when we exist without our bodies in heaven before Jesus comes back, but the hope of the Christian faith is that we are given new bodies, that everything about us is made new and redeemed. Um, so there's not this like, okay, we just got to like, you know, not think about our bodies or not like care about our bodies. That's not how the Christian faith um, works. But our flesh is this, this inclination inside of us, this sinful nature, um, this thing, this like magnetic pull away from God. It, it's, like, it's like this DNA inside of us that pulls us away from God. It's, a, it push, and it, it's how Paul says in verse 7 is, we're hostile to God. And so we hear that command, love God and love other people. Um, and there's something in us that is like, don't put, don't put boundaries on me. Don't tell me what to do. You know, it's kind of like we, we, when we go to, like Katie and I like to hike, when we go to parks, um, you know, state parks and whatnot, and then there's like a, a sign that says, don't 
don't go out here because you're going to kill all the vegetation. And it's like, well, I'm not going to listen to that. I need to get my selfie out there hanging off this cliff or whatever. And then we fall down and the bears get us. But, um, but you know, it's like somebody tells us what not to do and it's like, oh, I'm not going to do that. Um, or the opposite is like, I'm going to follow the rules and I'm going to judge everybody else who breaks them and feel better than them. And so either way, it's like, well, that's not love. That's not loving God. That's trying to perform and impress God and judging and looking down on others. And that's not loving them. And so everything within us pulls us from doing. Our sinful nature puts loving self first. It's opposed to loving God and loving others. But verse 8 says, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And what he's been doing is contrasting those in the flesh and those with the spirit. And so that means those who have the spirit can please God. The righteous requirement of the law that God is not just that, hey, you aren't condemned for the penalty of the law for breaking it, but also uh, from the inside out, I'm transforming you into the type of person who actually is keeping the, the law of loving God and loving others. And so in this, in the first part, we said being like Jesus means God is for us, not against us. And being free from sin's power means uh, that we live for God, not against God. Like Jesus means we live for God, not against God. That's what it means to be free from sin's power and be like Jesus. It means we live for God, not against God. So God is for us, not against us, and we live for God and not against God. But when we, before we have the Spirit, we are unable uh, to live for God from our heart. And so these verses are a general description of those who are in Christ. And in verse 9, he gets personal um, to state what is true of his readers. And if you've trusted in Jesus, hear this as a statement of what is true of you in verses uh, 9 through 11. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. So that's a statement of, like, here's what's true of someone who's in Christ, and He's like, in you. This is what is true of you, my readers. This is what is true of you if you've trusted in Jesus. And there's a way I like, I mean, house, examples of buying a house or renovating a house are just great for explaining the Christian life. But he says the Spirit dwells in us. And Jesus, and when we come to Jesus, it's like Jesus, sin lived in our house, living there, hanging out, doing its thing. Um, and then Jesus comes and says, I'm buying this house. I own this house now, but there's kind of like this transition process of like sin is like, well, I'm not going anywhere. It's kind of like a squatter. It's like sin has no ownership over us. We've been set free from sin, set free from its power, set free from its ownership. It's no longer our master. It doesn't reign over us. It doesn't have dominion. But it's like, yeah, but I'm going to squat here. Nobody's going to kick me out. I'm just going to hang out. And so the longer sin is allowed to sit in us and decorate, the more death um, we experience in our life. But it's like, God, Jesus says, I own you now. You belong to me. You belong to Christ. And Spirit moves in. And now it's like, okay, uh, the Spirit is the one who owns this house. It's like, no, you don't belong here anymore, sin. But we're kind of in this place where we need to be cooperating with the Spirit to say, yeah, I'm going to move sin out. And Spirit, you move all your stuff in. Um, but it's this, it's this cooperative effort. And 
there's this misconception, I'll mention this just quickly, that um, <clears throat> sometimes uh, as Christians we can get worried when people um, are here. I'll just say this statement. A misconception is if there's a biological explanation for what we're doing wrong, then we're not responsible for it. It's not sin. And so sometimes it's just like if there's something about our genetics or, oh, you know, growing up, all these things happen, and so that just explains. Um, or it's like, oh, you know, I just have this thing from my parents in my, in my genes, so that just makes me the way I am. It's like, well, no, there's everything about this passage says um, that our mortal bodies have been infected with sin, that our genes, um, even that has been affected. Our whole e- existence as human beings has been corrupted Infected by this poison called sin. So even if we get to this place where it's like, oh, I can explain this because of your brain chemistry, it's like, well, no, it's all connected. Everything's been affected. And that's not to say that there's not a place for doctors and physicians and all that stuff. It's, we're whole beings, and, but we've all, all of it's been corrupted. But in verses 12 through 17, he moves from, this is what's true of you, to an ex- exhortation. This is what's true of you, and so this is what you do because that's true of you. And this transformation and growth that we want to experience isn't automatic. It's not like we're on this moving sidewalk and you just stand there and you're just kind of transformed no matter what, you know, kind of this let go and let God thing. Um, and it's just like, let God, just let God do it. He's just, he just got to do it. If it's going to happen, he's going to do it. We're not on this moving sidewalk, but there's something for us to do. So even though Paul says the spirit is what transforms you, look what he says in verse 12. So then, brothers and sisters, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you'll die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. And what Paul tells us here is sin has been dethroned in our life, but has not been destroyed, that it has not been completely eradicated and purged. Sin has been dethroned. It's not ruling over you. You're under a reign of grace, of the Spirit's power, of Jesus, um, but it has not been destroyed. You know, it's tr- still a squatter trying to live in your house. And where does the Spirit lead us? He says the Spirit, everyone who's led by the Spirit of God is a son of God. And he talks about um, that we put to death the deeds of the body um, by the Spirit. There's something for us to do. The leading, you know, to be, for someone to lead you means you have something to do. There's a cooperation. And he calls us children. And children need to cooperate with their parents. I mean, parents can be like, I want you to grow and be transformed and I'm giving you every you know, opportunity and everything, all the instruction, all the stuff you need to grow. But if a child is just like, you know what, I'm on the moving sidewalk. Um, and so like, you just got to kind of do this for me. Like, there's a cooperation. And he says, we put to death by the Spirit um, the deeds of our flesh. That this sin that still is present with us, doesn't have power over us, is still wanting um, to pull us away, but we don't have the shackles on us. Um, that we need to put that to death. And where does the Spirit want to lead us? To be children. When I, was, when I look at this passage, it, it gives us thing which um, is an empowering thing because we can sometimes feel um, like, man, you know, it's sin, I'm just never going to be rid of it. 
like I just got to live with this thing. I just got to live with all these things that I don't want to do, and like I just got to wait for Jesus to come back. But um, the amount of sin in my life is there due to how much I let it live there. Because he says it's no longer in control, doesn't have ownership over me. I belong to Christ. The Spirit is in me, and by the Spirit, I can put that sin to death. See, the amount of sin in my life is due to how much I let it live there. Like it's okay. Like I'm not gonna kick you out or anything or focus on you. Like I'm too busy. But what's important is not to get into this back into this law kind of legalistic mindset. But he says that we're God's children. We belong to God. We and He belongs to us as our Father. We belong to Him as our as His children. He belongs to us as our Father. It's the flip side, is that, like I said, of no condemnation. It's not just like, hey, uh, you're, you're no longer condemned, so that's great. But it's like, no, now you belong to God. There's nothing between you. And the same way that God the Father would treat Jesus is the same way he'd treat us, because now we have the status, the privileges of Jesus. And I just love the, the term here, how he says in verse 15, at the end of it, you received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And that word Abba, it's not like a magical word. Um, that's a translation straight from what a Jewish child in that day would have called their father when they were little. And you can think of all, it's interesting because all cultures um, kind of have these words uh, that little kids use. It's like the early consonants and early vowels that a kid can make is what they call their parents. So Hudson calls me Dada, because those are like some of the first sounds you can make. He calls Katie Mama. Um, and the B word, the B letter, is also is an early sound that kids can make. Bubba, you know, his second word was bubbies for bubbles. And so it's like in that culture, for a Jewish child, it was Abba. Abba, this is what a little kid calls their father. And Hudson doesn't say Dada to everyone. He's going to walk around and call you guys Dada. Although he gets kind of confused when we look through picture books because every single human in there is a Dada. But you know, who's this Dada? Dada. No, you know that's Mama. I don't know why in the picture books, but that's what it is. But uh, he says it to me. And now you know, it's not like we just kind of say Abba to any old God out there. It's like. God has brought his spirit into us and now we have this attachment to him. So now we say, oh, you're my father. Now we say, Abba, Father, and we cry out to him and he's attached to us. He said, you belong to me now. And now we're attached to him that we have this connection with him we cry out to him, Abba, Father. And that's still true of us even as we imperfectly obey. Like this verse says, by the spirit you put the death, the deeds of your flesh. And our imperfect obedience does not condemn us. Romans 8.1 There's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You don't, God doesn't start being a judge as soon as you're not perfect. And sometimes we can think like, you got to come to God and you just bring it all to him and he forgives you. But now once you're in, well, you better get your act together because if you aren't perfect, like he's going to be upset with you. And we don't live for God so that he'll be for us. He is for us and not against us because of Christ. And our obedience doesn't make him for us. It's us trusting in Jesus that makes him for us, not against us. And so that's covering how the Spirit makes us like Jesus by freeing us from sin's uh, power. Um, but if we think back to Jesus' baptism, you know, we're being made like Jesus. At Jesus' baptism, um, you can read about it in Matthew and um, Mark, Luke. Uh, God 
the Spirit descends on him, and God the Father from heaven says, This is my beloved Son, whom I am well pleased. And that same Spirit is given to us, so that God is, by His Spirit, He's saying, This is my beloved Son, this is my beloved daughter, whom I am well pleased, whom I cherish, whom I delight in, um, whom I'm a, I adore. And if what you think of yourself is, you know, I'm a dirty, rotten sinner, then you're out of sync with what God thinks of you. That's not the Spirit's voice telling you, you're a dirty, rotten sinner. You're a dirty, rotten sinner. That's not what the Spirit tells you, is telling you. That's not the Spirit's voice. If you've trusted in Jesus, your core, fundamental identity, at the deepest level of your being, the Spirit has been planted there, testifying that you really are a son or daughter of God, and that you're crying out, Abba, Father. Your fundamental identity is not sinner. It is beloved child of God. And that's an explosively powerful truth. If you feel like I've got this area of sin or selfishness that I cannot do, I mean, take that dynamite stick and shove it in there and blow it up. That's like an explosively powerful truth. And so that's how uh, we're made like Jesus, by being free from sin's penalty. And being free from sin's power, Jesus' sinless life to resist temptation, the same spirit that he relied on to resist temptation to live a sinless life has now been given to us. We're being made like Jesus and now we are sons and daughters in our status and now in our nature, now we have the same spirit that now we can overcome sin and resist temptation. And Paul says, not, you're not just children, but you have this inheritance to look forward to. Fellow heirs with Christ, whatever Jesus is going to inherit, a new creation that he's going to reign over and look over, we're right alongside him. It's not like, you know, well, Jesus, you know, he's kind of like the son that God likes. Uh, no, fellow heirs, you know, fully sons, fully daughters, fellow heirs with Christ. And maybe Romans 8.17 or something, you've, or 8.16 to 17, you've thought, you know, that'd be a nice uh, verse for my coffee mug or on my wall. And then you start reading to the end, oh, we're fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. You know, I'll just cut it off at the first part of verse 17. I'm not going to put that in my coffee mug. But what is this value of suffering? Um, and Romans 5 is kind of a, a, twi- a sister chapter to this chapter. Um, and there, Paul tells us the value of suffering, that um, it creates endurance and it creates hope in us. So it creates strength in us. That suffering, um, suffering is in this world because people hate God. So if you love God, people are going to hate you. Suffering is in this world because there's sin um, that's corrupted our creation, corrupted our bodies. There's people that hurt us because they're sinful. Um, and so all that suffering um, and our bodies being messed up and not operating how they're supposed to, God takes all that suffering caused by sin and he uses it as, this, as a surgeon, as a scalpel in our life to loosen our grips on what we can see here and now and to put our hope into something in the future that cannot be taken away from us. And God uses that pain um, like a surgeon uses his scalpel to bring healing to our lives, to loosen our grip, to get our hope off of what we can see. And so lastly, we're free from sin's presence. The Spirit makes us like Jesus by freeing us from sin's presence. This is in verses 18 uh, through 30. I'll read verses 18 through 25 to start. Paul, after he talks about suffering, he says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. 
For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to fertility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved, not, and now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, wait for it with patience. And just a quick summary of those verses is creation in Genesis 3 was cursed by God, it's cursed by sin. Um, and that was a consequence of sin being brought into it. And God says, I'm not going to do away with this world. I'm not going to do away with the universe. I'm going to liberate it. I'm going to set it free from this curse that sin has brought on it. And so we have this, what we look forward to is our inheritance. is a new creation that will be on this earth. We won't be disembodied, floaty, angel, cherub, baby things up in the sky, um, just singing songs all the time, but we're going to be on this earth in a new creation, and we're also, the hope for us is that we're going to have new bodies. It's not just that we're going to be um, floating with as spirits, but we're going to have these new resurrected bodies like Jesus has. That's what Jesus has right now. Bodies free from sin. And he says, there's this groaning in the pains of childbirth, both the creation and us. And it's new birth. It's something new being brought out into us. And it's this painful experience, the, the groaning, the pain, the anguish. And the creation is in it as God's saying, I want to make this all new. And as he's making us new, there's this pain and this anguish. And as the suffering strips away the sin and selfishness, that's a painful process. But as we do so, we're being made new. God's making all things new. But there's an in the meantime, that's what we look forward to, uh, a creation and bodies free of sin's presence. Um, but in the meantime, he says in verses 26 through 30, Likewise, just like the creation's groaning, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we don't know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is in the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And just to pause there, that he says, there's this groaning that the Spirit's also doing in us, that we, the Spirit is telling us, we have this longing to be made new, and we are being made new. There's this new birth happening to us as we become more and more um, made in the likeness of Jesus. And sin is dethroned, but it's not destroyed. We can give in, and we have this maturing process as the children of God, and we don't always know what to pray for, what to ask God. We don't always pray in line with God's will, um, but the Spirit was, is within us praying in line with God's will, and our goal should be I want to be speaking in unison. I want to get in tune. Like, what is the Spirit drawing me towards? Where is He leading me? What is His will for me? That's the kind of prayers I want to have. And the Spirit prays for us that even when we aren't pulling ourselves towards God's will, the Spirit is. And then what is God's will for us? We're told in verses 28, through 30. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, and that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he, he, whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. 
God is working together, trusted in Jesus, all things together for good in our lives. But what is that good toward which God is working all things together? What is he mustering all of his power and using every single experience in your life to do? What's the good he's trying to bring out of it? And that doesn't always mean I'm going to get healed of whatever ailment I have. It doesn't always mean I'm going to get what I want. Um, But the good that he's working out tells us in verse 29, to be conformed to the image of his son, Jesus. Is that the good that God is working, using everything that happens to us to do, is to make us more like Jesus. And the spirit is in us to draw us towards that, um, to create in us um, Jesus' likeness, and which is assumed them for being, when we're finally like Jesus, that means we'll be glorified. No more sin corrupting our bodies, corrupting uh, any part of us. And so, we talked at the beginning that we have this struggle and fight against sin. And I want you to think about this, and if you have a bulletin or something else you write in or just think about it, what's something in your life where you're saying, God, I know this is what you want me to do, but I just can't seem to do it. What's something in your life where you're saying, God, I know this is what you want me to do. I know this is what you command me to do. So I know this is what obedience would look like, but I just can't seem to do it. What's that thing for you in your life that you've been trying to change or work on? truth is you'll never and I'll never experience lasting change by focusing on that command and trying harder to keep it. That's what Romans 7 is about. We can ask what grows a child of God to be more like Jesus and I used this I don't know, several weeks ago the, the idea of like you get these little things and plants and I try to do what they say but they just seem to die anyway. I don't know my deal is, but, you know, they usually say, like, full sun, or part sun, or part shade, or whatever it is, and the thing that is, you know, if we're a little child of God, stuck in a pot, and we came with this stuck in us, the thing that I would say is, you need full light, that's what we need, and the light that we need is really simple, Um, the light that grows, the thing that grows a child of God is the very same thing that actually kills sin in our life, and it's the light of who God really is, it's the light um, and which also tells us who we really are, who God is, what he's done, and who we are. And if we want this growth to happen in our life, we need to be um, coming to the light of, oh God, this is who you are, that you're gracious, there's no condemnation. This is who I am. I'm your beloved child. I don't deserve that at all. You've given me your, your spirit, and you say that I belong to you, and that's what kills sin and also grows us. It's the very same thing and <clears throat> that we need um, that light, that it, it grows us as children of God. And often our prayers, uh, we can get to this place where we're saying, well, there's kind of like maybe three levels of holiness. I just made that up now. Three different kinds of ways we can pray or whatever. One is like, God, I'm feeling impatient with this person. Make them less annoying, you know, or like remove them from my life. And then we're like, well, you know, it's really not about them, it's about me. God, make me more patient. And that's a fine prayer to pray. You know, usually we just ask God, take away the circumstances that are making me impatient. 
And then we start saying, okay, never mind, make me patient in the circumstances. Um, but at the deepest root, a deeper prayer, um, and God doesn't just zap us and make us patient. Um, the Spirit is given to us to make us more patient, make us more loving, make us more kind and gentle and good. But how he does that is a deeper prayer would be, God, uh, show me how patient you've been with me. It's not necessarily that the Spirit is going to give this instant zap, but what that the light that grows as children of God is seeing this is what's true about God, and this is what's true of how he's treated me. And then that's what grows patience in our life. It's like that's the nutrients we need at the root and sort of to see the fruit of patience. So we don't, you've got to just zap some patience onto my tree as a child of God. It's like, no, put the nutrients of how patient you have been and good and loving and kind and gracious towards me at my root. And we get these reminders in God's word, and we get them through the Spirit within us. And the Spirit changes our behaviors by changing our beliefs, changing what we believe about God and about ourselves. So a way uh, we, can, we can pray that, um, but we also need um, to take time to clear out other noise in our life. To be How do we get to a place where we actually pray and then listen to the Spirit say things to us, or to read our Bible to hear reminders like Romans 8, God, this is what you're truly like. Um, and often our lives are so busy with other noise to hear that the Spirit within us testifying. You know, I've been, this past couple of weeks, I've been reading a couple of books that have been really challenging me and showing me, man, I really don't stop enough to be still, um, to be in silence and solitude and listen and just be with God and like let the things inside me bubble up like I'm feeling fear and anger and all these things but oftentimes we so cloud our lives with all these other things we don't even know what's going on inside of us um, and I was thinking about you know we all would if you ask anybody well you know how's your how's your week or how's your life busy you know that's almost like the unanimous answer um, and it's like let's just try to stop having that be like our answer for our lives and we say oh I, I'm too busy to read I'd love to read my Bible more, I'm too busy. Or I'd love to be in silence or listen to God more, but I'm too busy. And we kind of act like, you know, life is busy, like life is the thing to blame, to bring busyness into us. Like, no, your life is your life, and you have total, you have control over what's happening and what you're bringing into it. And, you know, every, I was thinking about this, I told Katie a couple weeks ago, we can feel like, man, I don't have much time or I'm busy. But, you know, this miracle happens every fall where suddenly I find an extra like two hours in my week every fall because I love playing fantasy football. And you manage your own team, you draft players, and every fall, miraculously, somehow within my busy schedule that doesn't have any room for like prayer or more Bible reading, I find an extra two hours to be working on my team and like checking the scores and all that stuff. And I told Katie, I'm just this, I don't think we should, I should do it this fall because right now I just feel like life's too packed that I'm not allowing that much time for God. And so how could I bring this other thing? And so something we need to do is clear out some of the junk in our schedules to make space for looking to God. Because if you want to become like Jesus, you want to become like God, we become like what we look at. And we just spend so much time looking at everything else in life. We spend TV and football and Facebook and Instagram and other people. This is how they treat me. And so then what do we do? We treat them back. We become like what we look at. And so we need to just look at God more. Look at what he's like. Ask the Spirit to show us what he's like so we become more like him.
as we close, we just think about as a community, we're a family with God as our Father. And if any fan, like any family, we have differing levels of maturity. We're all growing together. Some of us are newer in our faith. So, you know, maybe we're, I'm not, you know, naming names or pointing out anything, but it's like we're just all different levels. You know, babies, toddlers, teenagers, and uh, adults, spiritual parents. And as we grow together, we remind each other, hey, God loves you. And we're, even if you're at an adult level in your faith, it's like, well, now you're tasked with leading others, um, but you're also still growing too and needing to remember all the same truths. And so as a family, we grow these truths together, saying, let's look at the Father, and let's, look, let's pray to the Spirit, which show us what the Father is like, um, so that we will grow to be like Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you that for the wonderful truth that there's no condemnation, that there's no more shackles on us, and that one day sin will be no more, that we will be like Jesus, we will be glorified in your presence with new bodies and a new creation, no longer cursed and corrupted by what we've done to it. Thank you for your grace that you do all of this not as a response to how good we are or um, our performance or our obedience, but you do it out of grace and you give it to us freely. You help us to live in light of that truth. In your son's name we pray. Amen.